Good morning. Hope everyone is doing well today. They were talking about praises earlier and you know, sometimes it's the simple things in life, isn't it? I went for a walk this morning and just kind of sat there and listened to all the water running through the creeks and the ditches. And it's been so long since you've been able to hear that when you're out walking. It's, it's just amazing. I hope everyone's been able to enjoy the decent weather the last few days before this hit and the holidays, being together with family and friends and just reuniting with people. One of the things that we often do when we gather together during the holiday season is we gather around a table for a meal and we pray with each other. And it's a very special prayer, isn't it? Because we have relatives we haven't seen in a while. We have grandparents. We have extended family members. Everyone coming together to come before Christ to ask a blessing on the meal. And Caitlin and I hosted Thanksgiving with our family this year. And so before I prayed and blessed the meal, we had our kids pray. And it was very interesting to see some of the things that are on our children's hearts. We have a three-year-old, a five-year-old, and a six-year-old, and an 18-month-old, but he can't talk yet. So, But the three-year-old prayed and thanked God for Blippi and Paw Patrol. The five-year-old prayed, and she thanked God for her older brother being her best friend. We'll see in ten years if that's still the case. And... <laughs> the, But the six-year-old, Caleb, he prayed and thanked God that Jesus died on the cross and that we can pray to him. And in that moment, it kind of struck me just how simple life is. But not just how simple life is, how simple our relationship with Christ is. Sometimes we get so bogged down by the troubles in this world that we allow it to distract us from a simple walk in faith with Christ, from our hope that we have in him. All of our hope is in Christ Jesus. And there's all sorts of hope that comes with our relationship in Christ, right? We have hope in the resurrection. We have hope in the eternal. We have hope that we are not alone in the valleys and in the seasons of life that we're going through. We have hope in what is yet to come. And we have hope in seeing him one day. All of our hope is because of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. A simple confession of faith and uniting of spirit. And this confession, as we said, gives us hope and it gives us all the hope we need because no matter what our situation is, a Christian's life is never hopeless. We're never hopeless no matter what situation we're in. In times of struggle, in times of good, in times of need, he is always there with us in the valley. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at some examples. We're going to look at a man who is so bogged down by sin that he feels utterly hopeless and like there's, there's no chance for him moving forward. We're going to look at a man and a couple who were going through great trials and tribulations, physically suffering and on the brink of death. And then we're going to examine praising him in times of good. So if you will, turn with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And if the psalm sounds familiar, it's because we looked at it the last time we were together. And the person we're going to begin with by talking about how he was bogged down with sin and felt utterly hopeless is David. Now, the last time we spoke, we talked about Mark chapter 7 and Jesus teaching the disciples and how he listed all of the sins that are on men's heart. 
And then we talked about David sinning with Bathsheba and how in that one act he literally committed every single sin that Christ listed. And yet in this psalm, David comes before God asking for restoration, speaking about his hope that he has in him and asking for the Lord's mercy. So we'll read the first 13 verses here of Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with the willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will be converted to you. Now you can tell from the tone that David is taking that he has completely hit rock bottom in this moment. But David is fully aware that life is full of changing seasons and valleys. We know this because of the psalm he wrote, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. He knows that we will hit lows, and he trusts that God will be with him. And earlier in life, when he was fleeing from Absalom in Psalm 62, 5 through 6, he writes almost as if he's talking to himself in this moment, My soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my refuge. I will not be shaken. And yet in this moment, he is completely broken. And there's something kind of leading up to this. Now, we talked about the sin with Bathsheba, but afterwards, he kind of thought that he had gotten away with it. And he was sitting in his court until the prophet Nathan came in. And when Nathan came, he told David a story of a man that had taken something that had not belonged to him. And he asked David, what the judgment should be on this man. And David stated that the man should be killed. And then Nathan said, you are the man, for you have taken Bathsheba and killed Uriah the Hittite. And in that moment, David totally understood what he had done. Because if it had been any other man, David himself declared that the man should be killed. So in this psalm, he comes before God. And in the first nine verses, he is coming in hope of receiving God's graciousness in hope of receiving God's mercy, and in hope of receiving restoration. And in verses 10 through 13, there are specific things that he begins to hope for. A new heart, not to be away from God's presence, to be restored, and to speak of the Lord's goodness. Now, when he has this hope of asking for having a new heart created within him, There's a very specific word that David uses. He uses the Jewish word or the Hebrew word bara, B-A-R-A, if you want to look it up for later. And essentially what that is, is that is creation. 
But it's a very specific type of creation. It's a divine creation. The only person that can be the subject of this creation is God. It is the same exact word used in Genesis 1 when God created the heavens and the earth. So what David is doing is he is coming before God in this moment of his brokenness. And he is asking for a divine creation of something within him that does not exist. A divine creation of a heart that will be loyal to God. One that will be sustained by a willing spirit. And one that the Holy Spirit must be with him to carry him with going forwards. But sometimes the points we hit in our life that are low... It's not just from the sin that we carry, the burden that we're carrying with us. Sometimes it is physical. It is physically suffering, and it could even be death, being minutes, hours, seconds away from it. So turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, and we're going to be reading verses 39 through 43. Now, What this is, is if you've ever seen any kind of Christian symbology or pictures, you've seen a hill with a big cross and smaller crosses on each side of it. And what that is, is that's representing this story. In the crucifixion, Christ had two thieves being crucified, one on each side of him. Now, in Matthew and Mark, it talks about how these thieves were mocking him the whole time with the crowd. But in Luke's account, eventually... As they got closer to death, one of the thieves began to recant. And there's a lot in the story of the two thieves, right? Because you have one thief that is bitter all the way to the end and one that repents. And the only thing between the two hearts of man is the cross of Christ. And then you also have the fact that one selfishly wanted Jesus to prove his power by saving him. And the other one simply wanted to be remembered. So let's read this starting in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly. For we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now, there's several things to notice in that. We spoke about some earlier, but notice that this thief, this repentant thief, in this moment of suffering and his death is approaching, this valley that he's in, he's not in this valley alone. Christ is literally beside him going through the same exact thing. The same exact pain and suffering. And yet, even when Christ is on the cross going through the crucifixion, he is still shepherding the lost sheep. This man is crying out to him, and Christ remembers him. This man simply wanted to be remembered. And the theologian, when Paul Shearer, when speaking on the thief, the repentant thief, he states that the one last claim of a life with his hands quite empty, laying hold onto the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, forgotten of all others, the never to be forgotten by God. And on the instant, not some far off tomorrow, but today, not some bounty of age to come, but paradise. And what Paul is speaking on here is that 
The thief was forgotten by all, but he was not forgotten by Christ. The thief simply asked to be remembered at a future point, and yet Christ remembered him immediately and did not give him a reward in times to come, but brought him into paradise that day. He gave the man more than he ever asked for in his trying time. And as we continue with this theme of clinging on to God, of being at a point in life to where all we have is hope, most of the times as Christians, when we think of hopeless situations and clinging on to God, we think of martyrdom. And just a heads up, if you have little kids, this is a martyr story. In the last class I took, the Anabaptist history class, we were going through some of the different reformers. And there's a story of a man that we studied named Michael Sattler. And I will probably never forget his story for the rest of my life. Specifically, the reason why Michael Sattler is remembered is not just because of the theology that he helped to bring about to the church, to bring change, but specifically because of the way he died and how brutal it was. It was one of the most brutal deaths of the entire Reformation. Now, during life, Michael was a Catholic priest, and he was trying to change the church. And one of the biggest things that he was telling his congregation was that there should not be infant baptism. We should be old enough to understand what we are doing when we get baptized. And that simple statement, along with several others, were enough to have him hunted and eventually killed and his wife to be imprisoned as well. Now, in his final days, while he was in prison, he wrote a letter to his congregation because many of them were afraid because they were on trial as well. And they were about to go through the same thing that he was for holding their beliefs in Christ. And he stated to his congregation, I did indeed desire and it would have been profitable, I trust, if I had labored a little while longer in the work of the Lord. But it is better for me to be released and to await with Christ the hope of the blessed. The Lord is able to raise up another laborer to finish his work. In this moment, after hearing the judgment, knowing what was coming, even though he desired that he could have continued to work, he was at peace and he trusted that the Lord would raise up someone else to continue his work because of the hope that he had in Christ. And he held on to that hope throughout his execution process. What had happened was the executioner came that morning and they grabbed Michael. They took him out and they bound his hands up so that he couldn't move. And then immediately the guards grabbed Michael and held him. And the executioner took out a knife and cut his tongue out. Then they took him and they chained him to a wagon and they were going to pull the wagon through town so that everyone could see Michael to the place where he was going to be executed. But before Michael was allowed to walk, the judge stated that the executioner would have to take tongs, get them searing hot on a fire and pull flesh off of him twice. Then as he was walking through town, they would hurl insults at him and throw fruit and all sorts of things. And finally, he arrived at the destination when he was there, they started a fire, and before he was unbound, they took the tongs, got them searing hot, and pulled flesh from him five more times. Then, normally when you were burned at the stake, they would put you at a stake, and the fire would be lit all around you from underneath. But for Michael, they tied him to a ladder and laid him flat in the fire. And some accounts state that 
They either put a satchel of gunpowder around his neck or they caked his beard in it so that as soon as he hit the flames, his face would ignite. It was absolutely awful. And yet, through all of this, he held on to the hope that he had in Christ. After the executioner had taken the knife and done what he did, even though they couldn't understand Michael, as he was going through town, people could hear from the rhythm of his voice the hymns that he was singing on his way to the execution. And as the executioner was getting ready to do the five times again, he was heard praying for the men that were doing this for him. And as they were sitting there before he went to prison, the people in his congregation and friends were scared to death of suffering a martyr's death. So they asked him for a sign to give them hope. And he said that, If it was bearable and it was worth it for Christ, he would point two fingers towards the sky. After all of this was done and they had laid Michael in the flames and his body was on fire, eventually the ropes burned through. And through the flames, the soldiers, the priests, and the members of his congregation that were not arrested saw Michael raise his hand and point two fingers towards the sky, telling them that the hope we have in Christ is worth the torture to enter the kingdom. Two days later, his wife, Marguerite, who had given up so much, she was a nun. She had walked away from her nunhood, from the friends she had made, from the monastery that she was in, because she loved Michael so much and wanted to follow him and help him on his journey and the work that he was doing for the Lord. They took her and they asked her if she would recount of the theological beliefs that she had. She said no, so they put a pole behind her legs, tied her hands to it, rode her out into the middle of a river and threw her out of the boat and gave her the third baptism, the baptism of drowning. And according to eyewitnesses, on the way out into the middle of the river, she was heard singing hymns, and she even prayed for the men that were doing this to her before they threw her in. That was her last act. Michael and Marguerite, like the man, the thief on the cross, held on to Christ because in those moments of suffering, that is all they had And sometimes some of us go through valleys and seasons, too, to where we cannot see anything that lays ahead. But we at least know that we have hope in Christ and in the kingdom come because of the cross of Christ and what he's done for us. But not all of life is bad and not all of life is heavy. Life is often good. And sometimes in the good times, it can be as distracting as in the trying times because... When you're in trying times, you get bogged down and distracted by what's going on. And when times are good, you often don't pray as much because the thorn is not in your side. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 150. It's the final psalm in the book of Psalms. We're going to read it together. Psalm 150. And it is titled, The Psalm of Praise, or A Psalm of Praise. Psalm 150, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the trumpet. Sound, praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with the tremble and dancing. Praise him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Praise everything that has breath. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. 
Now, we do not know who wrote Psalms 146 through 150, yet it is very fitting that this is the last psalm in this book. It is a reminder, after all the psalms we have read, the highs, the lows, the valleys that they were in, asking for protection from enemies, thanking God for the victories won, praising God for his loving kindness, that we end with a reminder that at all times, in all places, with all things, always praise God. Never lose track of the hope that we have in him, no matter what season of life we are in. And so I thought it was very fitting that in the week of Thanksgiving, our first Advent day was the Advent of hope and being thankful for the hope we have in Christ. And as we look back at these different examples of people that were at a point in life to where literally all they had was hope in Christ. I hope that's something that we carry with us throughout this week is reflecting back and being thankful on the hope that we have in him. And what does that look like for us as a body, as a congregation, even as individuals, if no matter what season of life we are in, we take time to be grateful and thankful for the hope we have in Christ. We take time to reflect on the cross. We take time to realize that even in this life and the next, even if we're seconds away from death, if we've lost everything, if life is going perfectly fine, Christ is always with us and we always have hope. And for that, we must be grateful. Let's pray. Christ, we thank you for the hope you've given us. We thank you for the valleys that you guide us through. We thank you that no matter what our sin is, you will be there to forgive us. You will be there to walk with us. We thank you that no matter what way we are suffering, your hope is there for us. And we thank you that even when times are good, your hope is there. Your hope never leaves us. We thank you for the cross of Christ. We thank you for coming, humbling yourself and being born in a manger. We thank you for the story that your word gives us, of your life and your teachings. And we thank you for the hope that we will one day see you. We pray your blessings on the week ahead. Amen.